been a lot to this bill, which has happened in a rush and without that detailed, thoughtful consideration and and certainly without cross-party support. So I think that's a very dangerous precedent. Hello and welcome to the first Matrix Law Pod of 2022 with me, Richard Hermer, together with my colleagues Helen Mountfield and Murray Hunt. Now, the main topic of this episode is going to be the focus on the elections bill that's currently progressing through Parliament. And we're looking forward to discussing that in a moment with Dr Jess Garland of the Electoral Reform Society. But as this is the opening podcast of the new year, we thought we'd start with some reflections from a rule of law perspective on the year just gone. And then to tie it up, we're going to conclude the podcast with our thoughts and concerns about the year ahead. So, Helen, I'm going to start with you. Looking back over the last year, what, to your minds, were the important themes or events at home or abroad that caused you either the most concern or perhaps even a renewed sense of optimism? Well, it's no new year. I'd like to do the renewed sense of optimism, but I'm afraid I'm, <laughs> I'm finding that a bit hard, but um, I'll, I'll do my best. But um, I do think one of the problems last year... And bearing in mind it was our first full year um, outside the EU transition period, has been the, sorry, I should say outside the EU transition period and the fact that we've had the continued pandemic, is the method through which the government has legislated. I think it's serially mixed up what is guidance and what is law. It's often legislated, and we'll talk about this in the elections bill conversation we have with Jess in a bit, um, without proper consultation, without a white paper. And often the legislation that it's put through has major um, delegated powers, including delegated powers to amend all sorts of um, important primary legislation, constitutional legislation, or to take away rights. And then, of course, there's been the great controversy um, little over a year ago with the UK Internal Markets Act about whether there would be an ouster clause and whether the role of the courts would be reduced. And if you take that with the um, the, the, the noises that were made about reforming uh, judicial review and the consultation at the end of the year about human rights, it all makes for a fairly depressing picture in terms of uh, respect for the rule of law. And I think we need to articulate more than ever why these things matter in a democracy. Murray, what about you? What's a 2021 mark from a human rights rule of law perspective? Like Helen, not uh, much to be cheerful about, I think. Um, abroad, for me, probably the most pressing concern was the escalation of the standoff between the EU and Poland and Hungary in particular over rule of law. Um, and the rather alarming signs that not only is that not getting any better, it's probably getting worse, particularly in the case of um, Poland and the escalation of the standoff over its independent judiciary, uh, but also that that's spreading and beginning to infect some other um, EU member states. And uh, there was an interesting leader in the FT uh, this week saying that the EU's really reached the point now where it has to decide, is it actually going to um, use its new rule of law conditionality mechanism and um, do something which might actually make a difference? Or is it going to continue to fudge things in a way which means that the, there is a real it's not really exaggeration, I think, to say risk of the EU legal order unravelling. 
this next year coming up. So I think looking back, that's one of the um, most concerning things for me, quite close to home. Um, at home in this jurisdiction, uh, we have a very British version uh, of not dissimilar things going on, um, undermining the independence of various important constitutionally independent bodies. We're going to talk about the Electoral Commission in a moment. That's one example. Commissioner for Standards, Environmental Regulator. Uh, lots of concern about um, the, the government not really understanding exactly what independence means in a constitutional sense for these important bodies. Um, and also, as Helen says, um, a revived interest by the government in ouster clauses in a number of different contexts. Um, and that's now becoming rather uh, a trend. We sit in the Judicial Review and Courts Bill, the Fixed Term Parliaments Bill. Um, we're now, we've now got this Human Rights Act consultation. Uh, there's a clear uh, will on the part of the government to ask Parliament to immunise it from judicial review and from oversight by courts. Uh, and that's happening now on a, on a range of different fronts. Uh, so I think, again, for me, that's um, the not very cheerful uh, main theme emerging from a, a quick review of 2021. Yeah, my my reviews, I'm afraid, at least internationally, are um, are equally gloomy. I mean, for me, one of the worst things in the last twelve months has been watching the crushing of democracy in Hong Kong. I mean, it's 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 watching a democracy die in real time. And so, you know, even if it was only a quasi democracy beforehand, it's seeing totalitarianism and just crush. And every time I watch something about that or read something about that, I'm kind of drawn back to our discussions that we had on two occasions with Patricia Ho, the human rights lawyer. And that kind of coupled also, I mean, this was a year in which there was a finding by the tribunal led by Jeffrey Nice of the genocide of the Uyghurs in China. And it's almost sometimes in, you know, it just reminds you of the hollowness of the, of, of the claim of never again, uh, as it's kind of happening in our lifetime and with, rarely making news headlines. I've found that increasingly depressing as, as, as last year played itself out. Domestically, let me try and pick an optimistic point, which was the government being forced to drop from the Overseas Operations Bill, the clause that said essentially tried to immunise British troops from prosecution for war crimes, including torture and genocide. And I think, you know, civil society and uh, the military and... Um, sensible voices in Parliament force the government to adopt a much more sensible and lawful position. So that's my optimistic bit for uh, 2021. We'll come to 2022 at the end, but now let's turn to the elections bill. And so to electoral reform and the elections bill. A discussion which we're recording precisely a year and a day after protesters in the United States stormed Congress in the belief that their presidential election had been stolen and as part of a campaign, orchestrated mainly by people who knew it had been not, to prevent the inauguration of a democratically elected president. And as we know, since that day, concerted efforts are continually being made by Republicans to make voting more difficult and to remove independent oversight of elections. Of course, we like to think that here we're very different, that British elections are free, fair and devoid of the stains of gerrymandering and corruption. Yet very real concerns have been raised about the elections bill currently winding its way through Parliament. Although most would accept that our election laws could be imp improved, the proposals have attracted sustained criticisms from parliamentarians and campaigners 
concern not simply that they will make voting more difficult for many, but that some provisions will make it more difficult to detect and punish political corruption. If those concerns are correct, it will plainly have significant implications for the rule of law. The criticisms of the draft bill uh, include those set out in the detailed report of the House of Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee, which they published shortly before Christmas. Here to discuss the bill is Dr Jessica Garland, Director of Policy and Research at the Electoral Reform Society. Founded in January 1884, the Society is the world's oldest organisation concerned with elections and political reform, working across the political divide to promote good governance and improve our democratic structures. Jess was one of the experts who gave evidence before the Select Committee, together with our own Helen. And Jess, we're delighted that you can join us uh, here today. And I, I wonder if we could start um, with a bit of background to the bill. Um, was there uh, a, and is there a recognition that there needs to be reform of our electoral law and election framework? Uh, and um, if so, what were the hopes for this bill? Well, the bill was a bit of a surprise, actually, Richard. Um, it came uh, in the Queen's speech and was introduced to Parliament in early July and contained a large number of provisions that were a, a surprise. Um, and there was no white paper. There was no pre-legislative scrutiny. So so the bill, as it stands, has, has come to many as um, a surprise. Having said that, there um, has been a lot of discussion around the need to update electoral law. The Law Commissions, as I'm sure you knew, began an investigation in 2011, um, looking at consolidating and rationalising um, electoral law. But what this current bill doesn't do is that sort of neatening up job. Instead, it introduces a lot of new proposals. The one we did expect to see was voter ID proposals, which had been piloted in 2018 and 2019. But there are lots of other provisions in the bill which have come as a surprise, not least changes to oversight of the Electoral Commission. Let's ask you in particular about what appear to be two main areas of concern. I mean, one you've raised already, which is voter ID. And the other are reforms to the Electoral Commission. And I wonder if we could start then with voter um, ID. Um, can you start with um, what it is that's being proposed? So the proposals that are on the table are that everyone who's coming to a polling station to cast their vote would need to show a form of photographic ID. And, and the photographic point is quite important because um, the two main forms of, of photo ID are, are passports and driving licenses and we know that not everyone um, has that type of ID um, and and the idea would be that when when you go to a polling station to vote in person that you have to show a piece of photographic identification which would then be assessed by um, by the polling staff workers um, and if you can't if you can't show that piece of ID, then then you can't vote. And and this mechanism was trialled in 2018 and 2019 um, in 15 different council areas, five in 2018 and 10 in 2019. And they trialled different forms of this. So so some went for a strict photo ID requirement. Others allowed bank statements and and credit cards and other types of types of ID. Um, and what we saw in those um, pilots of this policy was that a lot of people. Uh, um, failed to produce the ID um, in across all the pilots, about a thousand people failed to bring their ID and then 
subsequently um, didn't come back with the right ID. So it's about a thousand people in 15 council areas who who didn't manage to to cast their vote. And that's really where our concern is, that where this policy has been trialled in this country, in our existing system, that it has been shown to to have um, some some serious problems. Wouldn't that just be there, the natural teething issues that you get with a, a new system or... Would you do you have concerns that that there'd be more sort of structural uh, uh, problems with it? I think there are structural problems. As, as I said before, the two most um, common forms of ID are passports and driving licences. They cost money to to obtain. And actually, both the Electoral Commission's research and the Cabinet Office research shows that certain groups are much less likely to have those forms of ID. And it is related to cost. Those who are much less likely to have the ID are people who are unemployed, people in local authority housing. Um, so much poorer citizens are less likely to, to be able to find that ID. It's also people with disabilities and older citizens who are less likely to be able to get their hands on on the ID they need to vote. And so that's the kind of structural issue, which we think isn't just to do with the pilots. The pilots also had a lot of money um, spent on them. So there was a big public awareness campaign in in the areas that were piloting this scheme. And and the concern is, of course, that that won't be replicated nationwide when, when this comes in across the whole country. Isn't the government's response to that to say that they'll provide free voter cards to individuals? And is that a good answer to that or not? I think it's a. I think it's an essential part of it. I think if you're going to have a photographic ID scheme, you've got to you've got to provide a free ID. That's the absolute um, minimum. I think how that scheme then operates in practice, I think, is is going to be very important. Um, there are issues for people living in rural communities who might not be able to get to the issuing office. How often is that issuing office open for? Where's the money for councils to, to run that um, card scheme? And just to take an example from the US, I know there's one US state where one of the issuing offices is open on the fifth Wednesday of every month. Um, and, you know, not many months have a fifth Wednesday in them. And so, you know, it's just an example of how difficult these schemes can be. Can I ask you about the US? Um, Because in the US, um, voter IDs have been used nakedly for generations in order, in particular, to suppress the black vote. And we've seen that really since since the end of the Civil War. Uh, And obviously more more obviously in the Jim Crow era and now again in the post-last election era. So there, in some states at least, the motivation is clear. What's the motivation, as you understand it, for the government bringing in the reforms in this country? I can't see what the rationale is in terms of um, what the government say. There is no evidence that personation, the, the one type of fraud that this this is supposed to deal with, is is happening at all. Um, at least not on any sort of widespread scale. Um, Thirty three allegations in twenty nineteen, only one conviction. Um, so the motivation. It, it, Given that there are many other things that that could be contained in this bill, is 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 hard hard to see. And of course, you mentioned the states, and there we've seen a lot of these laws coming in on the basis of um, you know unfounded fraud allegations, and that's very damaging for people's faith in in democracy. Yes, I mean, I just wanted to go a bit further on on that because um, you said there were the thirty three allegations of personation in twenty nineteen, which I think I saw somewhere was. Point nor 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 five seven percent of uh, the vote 
So maybe for, even if, if all of those allegations were, were well-founded and only one of them led to a conviction, but if all of them were well-founded, it'd be about five or six votes in every 100,000, which couldn't affect the result of an election. Um, I'm thinking about the unequal effects that you talked about of um, the, the requirement for voter ID, the fact that it affects older people, poorer people, um, people of colour, traveller communities, much more. Um, and whether there's been any assessment that you're aware of, a quality impact assessment or any other assessment, of whether this is a proportionate measure bearing in mind the incredibly low scale of the problem. No, it doesn't seem to be proportionate at all, as you say, given the, the, the scale of the problem, if indeed there is one. And and that is something that the Joint Committee on Human Rights um, in Parliament pointed out. And again, the the recent uh, PACAC report, uh, Political and Constitutional Affairs Committee, that we both gave evidence to, have also said the government needs to provide more more evidence of, of the need for this policy. Um, yeah. Sorry, I don't say in the light of, in the light of that has there been have you have you heard sort of you presume you're talking to parliamentarians from all sides of the house quite a lot have you heard any rationale for why this why here why now well it's interesting to listen to to the debates around this bill because there seems to be a sort of quite a strong partisan line here between the opposition who say this is voter su- suppression and the government who say no but there might be this fraud happening we can't prove that it's not happening and indeed a, a lot of the government MPs will want to point to Tower Hamlets and, and known cases of electoral fraud so so there does seem to be quite a, a strong divide between people who see this as 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 a voter suppression technique and those who, who want to make the case for it being necessary. Um, and, 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 and that's where the dividing line is at, at the moment. And I mean, from my perspective, we're interested in electoral integrity. Of course, we're interested in how elections are run. And, and to my mind, we have to look at that as a whole picture. You know, electoral integrity isn't just about who turns up and can they vote. It's also about can people participate? And inclusivity is a really important part of, of electoral integrity. And so that sort of very narrow approach where um, the government's just looking at it through the lens of uh, are people voting who should be voting? We think it is is too narrow. Jess, can I move then to the Electoral Commission and the proposed changes to its um, uh, remit? Can I just begin by asking you to describe who they are? The Electoral Commission was set up um, with PEPERA, Political Parties, Elections and Referendum Act in, in 2000 and, and, and are the regulator responsible for um, parties, party donations and finance at that level, as well as ensuring, you know, free and fair elections and transparency around our, our elections. And they are supposed to be an independent body um, that has some you know, civil sanctioning powers um, to ensure that elections are fairly, fairly run in this country. They don't deal with candidates um, and uh, and candidates and their agents. So anything under the RPA falls still with the police. But the um, Electoral Commission, as you know, deal with all, all the other election rules. And what are the changes that are proposed to, to its mandate that um, cause you and the society particular concern? It's Section 3 of the bill, which is looking at um, the, giving the Secretary of State power to uh, have, create a strategy and policy statement for the um for the Electoral Commission, which which in, in the legislation the Electoral Commission are required to have regard to. Um, and this would then be measured by the um, 
Speakers Commission, a group of MPs in, in Parliament who, who oversee what the Electoral Commission does and are concerned that this that there's A, no rationale for having this, and B, that this really does kind of undermine the Electoral Commission's independence. You know, it's not a normal regulator. It's not there to um, enact the government's legislation. It's there to make sure that those who are taking part in elections are doing so fairly. And of course, there is a huge conflict of interest because those that they're supposed to be regulating are also those who would be setting this strategy and policy statement. So our concern is really that, that there's a big conflict of interest here. Um, the, what the Electoral Commission's, what its functions are, are set out in the legislation. We don't think it needs an additional kind of statement to say what it should be doing. And it does need some flexibility as well. The electoral environment changes um, frequently. So so we're really concerned both that the Secretary of State would be setting that strategy um, for the commission, um, but also that the the body, the Speaker's Commission that, that oversee the, the Electoral Commission's work at the moment has a majority of government party MPs as well. So, you know, there's a, there is a clear conflict of interest here and, and we think that needs to be revised. Can I ask you about, again, about the motivation for for these proposed changes. I mean, obviously, we're having this conversation in the light of many months in which the Electoral Commission has been in the news, not least because uh, investigations into corruption in Parliament and the Prime Minister and spending on the flats. I mean, would it be overly cynical um, to try and link um, these proposed changes to the hard time that the Electoral Commission has been given the current governing party? Well, I think the Electoral Commission has been under a lot of scrutiny, um, not just recently, but pretty much over the last three years, um, certainly after the EU referendum. Um, and there's been numerous um, investigations by committees and the Standards Committee. Um, it's interesting to note in, in the, the PACAC report that not one of the submissions to that committee suggested that the Electoral Commission needed to have this strategy and policy statement from, from the government and, and, and everyone um, sort of uniformly is concerned about this. So it's certainly not the direction we should be going down. But what's interesting, I think, about this um, current debate around standards and and, and and what's appropriate behaviour, it is filtering down to ordinary people. You know, it's not just the likes of us who are sort of in, engaged in these issues. Those questions about standards and propriety and, and, and what should and shouldn't happen are really kind of cutting through at the moment. And I think that's really important because people's perception of the system is is so important with democracy. And you referenced the states earlier on. These changes to laws have been brought in because people genuinely do believe that fraud has happened uh, that, and they have lost faith. And confidence in the American electoral system is rock bottom. Whereas here in the UK, up until recently, you know, has been really high. It's been 90% of people confident that they can walk into their polling station and that vote will be cast legitimately and other people are casting their vote legitimately. So we we question that and we cast out on that and we mess around with that um, at, at our peril. You know, it, it, once you start unravelling people's faith in democracy, that is that is a one, one-way street. And, and I think that's where a lot of my concern with this bill lies, is that we shouldn't be starting to cast out on the security of elections. And at the same time, it's clear that people are starting to wake up to, to standards and, and, and what should and shouldn't be happening in public life. And, and so it's important that we get it right. And actually having an independent regulator that is both, both independent and seen as independent is a really important part of that. Jess, can I ask you about um, international standards? Um, 
the UK likes to think of itself as a as a global leader in terms of um, rule of law and democracy promotion and um, setting a good example and so on. <clears throat> I was very struck by the fact that when the minister gave evidence to PACAC uh, and she was asked about whether there are any examples from other countries um, of similar types of provisions in relation to their electoral regulatory bodies, uh, she wasn't able to provide any examples that go as far as the bill goes. Um, that's, I think, a really striking um, fact. I'm just wondering, are there any relevant international standards that uh, that apply to this question in relation to the Electoral Commission? And has that been part yet of the domestic debate about it? Um, that's true. I mean, from, from the outset, our Electoral Commission has been sort of at the forefront of, of transparency, at least, and, and the sort of information that people are required to provide. And, and so I think we've, we've, we've led the way with the Electoral Commission today. Whether we lead the way m- more broadly in democratic terms, I think is debatable. Um, in terms of satisfaction with democracy, um, you know, Westminster-style democracies, us, US, Canada, are the worst at, at, at people's, you know, in terms of people's satisfaction with democracy. And whilst it's been declining sort of globally, it has fallen off a cliff um, in in the UK and and in the US. And so, you know, there's there's different aspects to this. And I think, you know, having a good regulatory structure is, is really important. But there are so many elements in our system where we're we're really behind. But I say that uh, probably talking to the UK, thinking more about um, England, because of course Wales and Scotland are are pressing ahead with democratic innovations that are, are really um, at the forefront and, and really improving democracy. So I think there's also a, a, um, a divide opening up between our different nations. Um, I know um, that the Law Commission has done a lot of very detailed um, work on some of the changes that might be made to election law because it is incredibly complicated, even for people who hold themselves out as experts, and it's also based on a lot of 19th century problems. So there's been that, and then the Committee on Standards in Public Life has also looked at what changes we might have. Have you heard any proposals for changes to respond to either of those, uh, the, the, the suggestions that either of them have made? And, and if not, has anyone told you why not? No, and I find that very surprising because um, when the Law Commission's, you know, produced their final report, the, the government's response was, of course, well, we don't have parliamentary time for a, an election bill of, of that importance and that and that size. And yet here we are with an elections bill right in front of us. Um, and so clearly there has been time. And, and what's disappointing is both that those, that sort of uh, rationalisation, consolidation hasn't happened with this bill, but nor do we have have some of the really excellent recommendations that the CSPL have made, for instance, on on tightening up some of the loopholes. Um, And again, disappointing that the bill was published two days before that really comprehensive CSPL report, which again had a sort of cross-party element to it, took a broad, broad sample of evidence, um, lots of consultation. Um, And and that again is something that's missing with this bill, is that that element of cross-party consent, which has been... You know, if not written down as as a rule, has been the way that things have proceeded in the past, that at least cross-party consent has been sought, if not achieved, on these things which relate to elections. Um, and that definitely is not the case here. Yeah, It's odd, isn't it? Because that is something that PACAC picked up on. And I'm really perplexed by why something which is intended, they say, to promote uh, faith in democracy and the integrity of democracy... Um, was introduced without any attempt to consult or to um, take on board views of, of civil society. It seems to be very dangerous to me. 
I would completely agree with that. And and, and the speed at which this has been um, pursued Parliament as well. And of course, not only did we have um, evidence being given on, you know, to the committee on the morning of the second reading of the bill, but actually the government's introduced new clauses after second reading, um, which have had no debate in the House. The bill scope was extended, you know, during committee stage. So there's been a lot to this bill, which has happened in a rush and without that detailed, thoughtful consideration and and certainly without cross-party support. So I think that's a very dangerous precedent. But I kind of come back to the question as to why. I mean, you know, as barristers, we're kind of trained to be cynical and kind of think the, the worst motivations. But we've got we've got a we've got a bill that's making some fundamental constitutional changes to potentially the advantage of the governing party um, that is ignoring some detailed um, bipartisan uh, work um, that it's done without consultation, that's overriding parliamentary norms by adding clauses after certain stages of the debate. Um, why? That's, I mean, that is the, the question on everyone's lips. Why do you change an electoral system, which is the, the clause that was added after second reading? Why do you change who, who can vote when there's no evidence of a problem to solve? You know, why, why do you make all these changes um, and force a bill through to make sure that they can be implemented before the, the next general election? I'm sure everyone, will, cynical or otherwise, will come to their own conclusions about that. I, I find it worrying. I, I find the speed, actually, with which this bill is going through the most troubling aspect of it. Um, and, and and people, I'm sure, will draw their own conclusions. But we shouldn't have a situation. As I say, people are very alert to propriety and, and standards these days. And I, I think it, it, it casts a bit of a, yeah, it paints it paints a less than um, attractive uh, picture, I think. Well, Jess, I was kind of drawing that together, really, just then to kind of finally ask you about traction in terms of opposition to the bill um, and how whether you're finding cross-party support for your concerns uh, about its contents and also whether you're now in this kind of post um, uh, political as you've as you've so kind of eloquently described the kind of greater public interest in corruption not least in the past few months but there's also been greater traction from the public um, whether or not people are starting to latch on to what's going on with the elections bill. Can I start though with, with, with Parliament and whether or not you're getting kind of concerns from Conservative benches as well as the opposition? Up until recently, I would say no, it had become a very sort of um, down the middle partisan uh, affair. Um, I, I think recent days uh, with the PACAT report, with um, certain MPs kind of questioning the sort of civil liberties angle of all of this, I, th- I think perhaps there is some shift in that. And and it really is a question of whether, whether those MPs who have got slightly cold feet about the implications of this are, are willing to um, stick their head above the parapet with it. But of course, you know, in our sort of t- party politics it takes quite a lot to shift um shift people away from the from the party line but in terms of cut through with with the public um you know i've worked in constitutional and political reform for a decade and i'm very used to hearing people say this is not a bread and butter issue this is not something that people kind of think about over their cornflakes in the morning but but some of those things have cut through um, and, and and people are starting to question things. There will be elements of this which will never excite public interest. I don't imagine changes to the Electoral Commission are something that people are kind of um, going to be aware of or really understand the implications of. But 
when it comes to the next general election, people everyone who wants to go and vote will feel the impact of this. And so that's why I think it's really important that we do try and raise it up the agenda and, and, and get more people thinking about it. Sorry, I'd said last question, but Murray, I know that you wanted to um, ask Jess something. Yes, Jess, I'm interested in whether you think that the unelected chamber, when it reaches there, is going to be reticent in getting involved in uh, the details uh, of this bill. Um, we've become pretty dependent on the House of Lords for addressing these sorts of constitutional rule of law type issues. And do you think that they will be as willing to get involved on this bill? Well, I think on the issue of voter ID, perhaps not as that was, um, you know, linked to manifesto promises. But I, I do think on the issue of the Electoral Commission, which, um, as I said, was has not been previewed, you know, was a surprise to most people. The changes there that there there is there is a strong strong case for the Lords taking um, taking a strong position on that. As you say, it's a rule of law issue, and I think I think they would. Um, and indeed, you know, in our conversations with them have, have shown a great deal of concern around that change. So so I'm very hopeful that when this reaches the Lords, that there will be some pushback. Helen, the very, very last yes. question. Yes, we'll come out to the woodwork now and ask some extra questions. Jess, one of the questions that um, PACAC asked me when um, we gave evidence to Parliament was whether the uh, voter ID provisions um, if they had a differential effect on disenfranchising people, might um, be contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights. And although there are different practices across the Council of Europe on whether voter ID is required in different places, um, I, I did think that it would sort of, it would depend on what justification was advanced and how how different the differential impact was on different groups um, in society. Do you think that's something that um, someone or some group might challenge? Um, or do you think that's just, as you say, it's not it's not a cornflakes bread and butter issue and, and perhaps it'll just go however unhappy people feel about it? I, I think there's, there's a huge scope for a challenge there in the sense that um, at the next election, if people feel like they, they haven't been able to vote when they should have been able to, that that's a very strong case doing so. And I think in terms of the sort of how it affects different groups differently, what will be absolutely crucial is having the data to know whether this has affected certain groups more than others. And what we didn't get with the pilots was the data to to be able to see was one particular ethnic minority, were younger people, older people, who was affected most by this. So it will be absolutely crucial if this comes through that actually that data is gathered. Not just for challenge, but actually just to know, for the government to know, has has this had a detrimental effect on any particular group? And so I'd really want to see when this comes in, if it comes in, that that, that data is being captured. It wasn't captured in Northern Ireland when the scheme was introduced. So really important that we've we've got the data to be able to see if it's having an effect and indeed to be able to kind of challenge it if necessary. Jess, thanks so much. As the, as the number of last question demonstrates, I mean... Um, it's completely fascinating and not just fascinating, but obviously for all the reasons you've so eloquently said, so incredibly important from a constitutional rule of law perspective. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So um, another fascinating and alarming uh, um, discussion. Um Helen, I'm going to start with you because you, of course, are a, not only gave evidence, but you gave evidence because you're um, an expert in the field. What What are your takeaways from what we've just heard from Jess? 
Well, like her, I'm very concerned that the things that independent bodies like the Law Commission and the Committee on Standards in Public Life have identified as problems are simply not addressed at all. And none problems are addressed. It's very hard to avoid the inference um, that this is about um, packing the electoral system rather than trying to uh, make it more um, open and transparent. It really is. I'm, I'm trying not to, but I, but I do find that tricky. And I'm also worried about the, the, the way in which this legislation has been introduced. I think it's very important that as measures looking at things like judicial review, human rights, election law come in, there is at least some attempt to have a public debate with civil society and some um, attempt at cross-party support. And that doesn't seem to be there. And as Jess said, if you if you start to unravel trust in democracy, it can very soon run away with you. And that's very dangerous. So I find it all quite depressing, really. Marie, you is equally depressed. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> I think the main, main takeaway for me from what Jess was saying is um, we have to remember that uh, the right to vote is what Jeremy Wardron calls in a democracy, the right of rights. It's, it's the most fundamental of our rights in a democracy. Um, so it's not likely to be tinkered with. Uh, and what's absolutely extraordinary about this bill is the lack of any evidence of the necessity for the voter ID provisions, any evidence at all. Um, and combined that with the, with the, the sheer disproportionality, the, the, the obvious disproportionate impact on disadvantaged groups that the voter ID requirement is going to have. Um, I think PACAC are right that this is uh, th- these are really serious interferences with that right of rights um, and the government needs to seriously think again. Finally, I think um, the, the lack of uh, uh, the apparent lack of an equality impact assessment to assess the disproportionate impact again is quite extraordinary. That quite urgently, I think, needs to be addressed by the government. Right. Let's move away from the elections bill. And as promised in the intro, a quick look at the year ahead. So what I really want to hear from you both on is what's going to be kind of top of the agenda from a human rights rule of law perspective, either home or abroad in 2022. Uh, Murray, do you want to kick us off? So I think to take a broad first, I think for me, the big issue is going to be working through the fallout from that big geopolitical turning point that we all saw back in August, the chaotic um, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And uh, that raises so many important rule of law, human rights, democracy questions. Uh, It's really an opportunity, well, it's a moment for requiring a reset by the international community and by those states who regard themselves as being global leaders on rule of law, human rights and democracy about how they do these things. We've clearly come to the end of an era uh, in which one way of doing things has manifestly failed with absolutely catastrophic catastrophic consequences. And for me, we need to work that through, um, both at a national level in the UK, how it fits into global Britain aspirations, but also internationally, what the global, what the international community is going to do about that as well. At home, for me, I think probably the main priority coming up is the government's consultation paper on the Human Rights Act, which really amounts to a proposed dismantling um, of that act. Um, as Adam Wagner memorably said, it's going to be the first Bill of Rights that um, any state has adopted, which is actually uh, reducing the protection of the rights which already exist in the legal system. And uh, that's what's being proposed in the consultation paper. The Independent Human Rights Act Review has produced an incredibly thoughtful report with some very interesting recommendations, also generated uh, a great deal of useful resources, uh, which I hope will help people to engage with that consultation. But for me, that's going to be a major priority, because what the government's proposing in that paper, including the the, uh, democratic override clause, looks very similar to what states like Russia are currently doing in relation to the European Convention. So I think that's priority number one in the year coming up for me. 
What about you, Helen? Yeah, I agree entirely with Murray about the um, human rights consultation. I think the other thing that's very, and, and about Afghanistan, actually, but I think the other thing that's very important um, from the international point of view is what is happening in America, whether democracy will survive in America. Because if it doesn't, um, then we face a world where there really isn't a major power bloc that isn't authoritarian um, and totalitarian. And I, I think the, the, the way in which democracy can be undermined in America so quickly um, and trust in democracy shows how much these things depend on, a, on an ethos and a way of acting and not just the written rules. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a bit of both of yours. I mean, domestically, I think we're all agreed the Human Rights Act and what's going to happen to that in the coming 12 months is going to be a really defining point. I mean, for what kind of nation we are, as much as anything else. And it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not we can garner public support for the protection of the right, and the people to understand that it's their rights that are being undermined, and whether or not also we can kind of garner this, go, this COVID experience as kind of making people focus on what rights are and whether that helps. And Helen, I agree with you. I mean, I don't, uh, obviously, Murray's right about the centrality of how we cope with Afghanistan, but I actually think that the midterms in the States are going to be a really important moment globally. Whether or not the Republicans succeed in as the party of Trump is going to have major impacts politically, both in terms of how people deal with truth in politics, but also I suspect what's going to be the defining political issue for our children, which is climate. And I think actually the November midterms are going to have a really significant long-term impact on that potentially. Anyway, that's all a bit depressing, but um, the fight continues and uh, we'll no doubt over the coming months um, discuss and debate the issues as they arise. So Helen, Murray, thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.